Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a benediction it is for us to be in the sanctuary of your presence, entering by the gate and way of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the open door into heaven, and hearing in our hearts the voice of our Savior bidding us to come and to gather around his Father's throne, and to taste the refreshment of the rivers of water that flow in the power of the Spirit to all who believe. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that as you are the King and Head of the Church Universal, and as you are the King and Head and sole teacher of the congregation that you have purchased with your blood here, we pray that in the mystery of your Spirit's presence, And through your word, you will come to us and minister to us. We pray that you will illumine our minds, that we may grasp the riches and depth of your truth. We pray that you would steady our hearts, that we may bear the power of your word. We pray that you would subdue our restless and stubborn wills by that word and through your Spirit that we may find ourselves persuaded of your grace and truth, yielded to your love, and bowing down in doxology before your majestic presence. Speak therefore, O Lord, because your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, in our studies in Paul's letter to the Romans, we came last Lord's Day evening to Romans chapter 9, and we are therefore entered just a little into this magnificent and very challenging section that goes from chapter 9 through to the end of chapter 11 and verse 36. And it's worth, before we read the passage this evening, I think it's worthwhile as taking a little glance forward to the way in which this section ends, speaking, as it were, from the point of view of the expositor of Scripture, the exposition of these chapters will have failed unless we find ourselves during them and at the end of them proclaiming that far from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And those three prepositions are equally important. Not only important that we recognize that all things are for him, nor indeed as we think about the way in which the gospel works, that we recognize that all things are through him. But it's altogether possible to see that all things are for him and through him, and assume this doxology ends by saying, and for me. And one of the things these chapters, I believe, will teach us, although they are dealing with the question largely of the place of the Jewish people in the purposes of God. One of the things they are here with all Scripture to teach us is, it isn't actually about me. It's about Him. Not about me, but about Him. Of course, because it is about Him, it becomes about me. But it's not about Him because it's about me. It's only about me because it's about him. And so we shouldn't be surprised if there is teaching in these chapters that emotionally and mentally and inwardly, and it would be no bad thing if it also happened physically, prostrates us in doxology before our mighty God. And that is where Paul means to take us. It will take us quite a few weeks to get there, but 
By God's grace, I hope that we will have tastes of that submissiveness to the wonder of our God as we study these chapters together. Paul, of course, as you remember from last week, is taking us from the heights of the end of Romans 8 to the depths of anguish he feels in chapter 9 and verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And you remember near the end, I took up that theme I'd mentioned earlier on from Alexander White, who told his congregation that as long as he was their minister, they would never get out of Romans 7 and into Romans 8. And when we were in Romans 7 and Romans 8, I said, I thought we should go one better, and that so long as anyone is our minister, we should never get out of Romans 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. And then, last Lord's Day evening, I added chapter 9, the glories of the gospel held together with the unceasing concern that the Apostle Paul has for his kinsmen according to the flesh, that they might be saved. But they are not saved, and this raises the question of our reading in verse 6, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, notice the biblical quotation, through Isaac shall your offspring be named or called. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Some of you remember in your very earliest days of being a Christian believer that the Scriptures that previously had been a book to you, previously had been a book to you, seemed to become a voice to you. It wasn't so much that you read them as that they spoke to you. And if your experience was anything like mine, there were verses that leapt, it seemed, off the page, and they seemed so astonishingly important and glorious and relevant. And there were all these great texts that mature Christians would quote, and you would try and think, now, where is that text of Scripture? One of those texts for me was the text that it's the head of our order of service this evening from the prophecy of Isaiah, or as I used to call it, Isaiah. I remember often people would say to me in different situations where there had been evangelism, but nothing had happened, or where there was a discouraged minister, ah, well, now they would say, God's Word will not return to him void. That was the old King James Version, or empty as it is in the English Standard Version. Void sounds much more magnificent. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose, that to which I send it, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And that was a tremendous encouragement to me as a young Christian seeking to bear witness to others, those I knew and those I didn't know. God's Word, God's Word will always return to Him having fulfilled its own purpose. It will never return empty. It's a glorious promise. You often have claimed it. God's promises never fall to the ground. 
God's Word never returns to him void. And that, of course, is exactly Paul's problem, because everything he can see seems to tell him that God's promises have fallen to the ground. Here he is, he is a converted Jew, and he finds himself in synagogue after synagogue, preaching the gospel, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And the very people to whom God had made his ancient promises are the ones who are rejecting the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ. And the question has arisen for him because he's an honest man and he's an honest student of the Scriptures. He doesn't just give flam when he believes that God's Word will not return to him void, but when he sees that God's promise to his ancient people doesn't seem to be being fulfilled, the question arises in his heart, has God's Word eventually failed? And that was no small thing to him. These were his own people, and he knew his Bible. He knew that the promise that God had given to Abraham was an everlasting promise in Genesis chapter 17. God's promise to Abraham would never fail throughout all eternity, that he would be Abraham's God and the God of Abraham's descendants. Indeed, earlier on in this very letter, the apostle had spoken about the fact that the promise comes through grace, that it might be guaranteed. And as he feels the weight of these biblical teachings, his own teaching, the teaching of the Old Testament Scriptures— that God has irrevocably committed himself to the seed of Abraham. He finds as he preaches the gospel, the natural seed of Abraham is rejecting that gospel. He is brokenhearted. That is to say, he is not an ivory tower theologian who says, but it's easy to solve this problem, and I don't need to worry about it. He is absolutely brokenhearted. And it's out of that brokenheartedness that the question arises. It arises so clearly in his mind, he begins to answer it even before he's mentioned it. And the question is, has the Word of God failed? Now, that's an important question for you and me as well, as we've read through Romans chapter 8. Because where Paul has brought us in Romans chapter 8 is this. When God gives us His promise nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. When God gives us His promise, that's where He's been taking us. And we were elated at the end of Romans chapter 8, standing with Paul and challenging anything in the universe to separate us from the God who keeps His promises. And the reason I say this is an important issue for us to discover what kind of God the Apostle Paul is speaking about is precisely because if he hasn't kept his promise to Israel, how can I be sure he's going to keep his promise to me? It was possible for an Old Testament believer to say, nothing can ever separate me from the love of Jehovah. And now he's faced with this situation in which there are multitudes, indeed in his time, the majority of his kinsmen. And the promise of God to be an everlasting God to Abraham and his seed, the question arises, has the Word of God failed? Because, my dear friends, if the Word of God has failed with respect to God's ancient people, you and I can have no confidence that the Word of God will stand firm for us. So, while Paul is speaking here about the Jewish people and God's purposes with Jew and Gentile, and it's very important to keep that in our sights, all the way along there's something here for you and me that we may learn about the God of the Scriptures. 
and find some of these perplexities that we experience, as most of us have, facing situations where the promises of God seem to be trumped by the circumstances of life. Paul was neither the first nor the last to ask the question, have the promises of God failed? Because they don't seem to be working out. And here in this particular context, he is going to unfold to us the greatness and the majesty of the promise-making and promise-keeping God. Now, just to give us some bearings, let me try and point out to you how the apostle reasons in these verses from verse 6 through to verse 13. First of all, having thought the question, he answers it in verse 6a. Then in 6a through 7a, he provides an explanation for his answer. From verse 7 through to the end of the section, he provides two illustrations that demonstrate the validity of his answer. And then in the next verse, not unimportantly, in verse 14, he raises a very common objection. Well, first of all, look at what he says by way of answer in the decisive refutation he makes in verse 6. The thought is in his mind then as the Word of God failed, and immediately he answers back. Now, we've seen this before, almost without having to stop to think. The Apostle Paul has biblical membranes in his being that seem to carry him instinctively to the right biblical answer. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. In fact, not is the very first word here. Very unusual to begin a sentence with not. Indeed, it probably is grammatically illegitimate. Not, he says, and you sense he's, he's talking to himself as well as talking to anybody who says, look, Paul, the Word of God has failed. Your gospel can't be right because look at what has happened to your gospel. And he says with every instinct in his being, not, not is it that the Word of God is failing. And he's simply echoing, of course, those words in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11. But it's one thing to give an instinctive answer. Your instinctive answers can be totally prejudiced. And many of our instinctive answers are simply totally prejudiced. It's one thing to say, no, that could never be. It's another thing to answer the deeper question, which is, well, how is it that that could never be? be. And so he turns very quickly from his decisive refutation at the beginning of verse 6 to a theological explanation in verses 6 and 7. What is the explanation? Look at verse 6b. It is this, not all those who are descended from Israel are or belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel. He's thinking about Jacob, and of course, before him, he's thinking about Isaac, and before him, he's thinking about Abraham. Not all those who are naturally descended from Israel are really God's Israel. Now, that answers the problem in a stroke. It's, it's, a, it's a brilliant answer to the problem. There are Jews who believe, and there are Jews who are rejecting the gospel. How is it that the promise of God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob or Israel is standing firm? Simple answer, because not all those who are the natural descendants who belong naturally to Israel really belong to Israel. It's a very simple answer, and it solves all the problems. 
But I wonder if you think, well, this is an interesting sleight of hand. This is like the magician, you know. He just pulls the bunny rabbit out of his hat. And uh, so on what grounds does Paul say this? It's a great answer. Well, the reason it's a really great answer is because he says this precisely on the basis of the Scriptures, precisely on the basis of the Scriptures. And he's going to go on to demonstrate that to us, that if Abraham's faith is not coursing through our hearts— as John Flavel put it, then Abraham's blood coursing through our veins is going to do us no good whatsoever. Now, here's a striking thing. At this point, the Apostle Paul is simply saying what all of the prophets had said. It is one thing to be circumcised, that is, to belong to the nation— It's an altogether different thing to experience the circumcision of the heart that God has promised to do by the power of His Holy Spirit. Or you remember, as John the Baptist said, you speak about being children of Abraham, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Or our Lord Jesus Christ, in perhaps the sharpest statement anywhere to be found in the Scriptures. You remember how John says to the Jews who say, we have Abraham as our father. And he says, you may claim Abraham as your father. You may have all the right genes. You may have all the right lineage. You may be able to trace your family line right back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But unless you believe in me, you are not the children of Abraham you are, now these are his words, and not some wild fundamentalist. You are the children of the devil. And so, as Paul gives an explanation for his answer, that the promise of God, the Word of God, is not failing He's not standing as an isolated figure in Scripture. He's standing on the shoulders of the prophets. He's standing on the shoulders of John the Baptist. He's standing on the shoulders of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to point out to us that this is true. Not all who are naturally from Israel really belong to the Israel of God because God's sovereign electing purposes to create a people have been operative from the very moment He gave His promise. And that's what He turns to when, in verses 7 through 12, He gives us His scriptural argumentation. There is his rejoinder to the question. There's his theological explanation. And now, thirdly, there's his scriptural argumentation. And look at what he says in verse 7, where he's quoting from Genesis chapter 21. He says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Those words that God had spoken said from the very beginning to Abraham, I am going to create a great people through you. But he says that people is going to be named, that people is going to be called through one of your sons exclusively and not through the other. So, you understand that this promise God has made is a promise God keeps, because when He makes that promise to Abraham, He already distinguishes between the seed of Abraham. You remember that Abraham had another son, Abraham, who in his moments of weakness and failure 
and the encouragement of his wife and, and her sin, took his Egyptian uh, handmaiden of his wife and had a child uh, by the Egyptian servant or slave, Hagar. And so he had these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And God said, through Isaac will your seed be named. Through Isaac will I bring saving blessing to the nations. Now, of course, just at that point, I think it would be fairly easy to say there is a very obvious explanation for this, a very obvious explanation. God decided that it would be through Isaac and not through Ishmael because Ishmael's mother was an Egyptian, because Ishmael's mother was a slave, because Ishmael was illegitimate, and because Ishmael mocked Isaac. That would be logical, wouldn't it? I know why God works this way, because you can tell from Ishmael that he would not be the chosen one, because he was illegitimate. My dear friends, you don't want to go there, do you? You don't want to say, do you, although people have said it amazingly, that God as it were, limits his purposes to those who are legitimately born. Incidentally, that would have excluded the 19th century Alexander White. You wouldn't want to exclude somebody on the basis of what their mother had been. And so, you see, we mustn't make the mistake at this point, and Paul will demonstrate this in a moment, we mustn't make the mistake of thinking, I understand why God is doing it this way. It's because of something in Ishmael. And in order to, in order to drive that point home, he uses another illustration, as it were, from the next generation down. Look at what he says now. He moves down from Abraham and Isaac to Isaac and Jacob and Esau. And this is a different instance altogether, because now do you notice in verse 10, not only, not only was God fulfilling His purpose through Abraham and Sarah by Isaac, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, although these children, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might stand or continue, not because of works but because of his call, she was told the elder will serve the younger. Now, what's different about this is that these boys had the same father but they also had the same mother. Not only so, but these boys who were in the womb of their mother were in that womb simultaneously, and they were twins. And then, as though to press the point home, before either of them had done anything, whether good or bad. Now, notice that. He doesn't say when neither of them had done anything bad, but when neither of them had done anything good or bad in order that God's electing purpose to bring a people to Himself might be fulfilled, she was told the older one will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, what's the point he's making here? The point he's making here is that God's sovereign election in this business has got nothing whatsoever to do with anything 
in either of these two boys. You understand that? It is stunning. But it's absolutely vital we grasp this, or we don't really fully grasp the wonder of the gospel. God's choice of Jacob and his passing by of Esau has got nothing whatsoever to do with any qualities God saw or foresaw in either of these two boys. And as though to demonstrate that, God actually overturned the whole natural order of things to demonstrate that what he was doing here was pursuing the purposes of his own sovereign election. So it wasn't on the basis of the parenting. It wasn't on the basis of heredity. It wasn't on the basis of anything that they did. It wasn't on the basis of anything bad that they did. Even more astonishing, it wasn't on the basis of anything good that they did or would do or might do or could do. But because of his own amazing, awesome, sovereign choice to bring a people for his praise through the one rather than through the other. And the whole point that Paul is making here is that when he says that not all who belong to the seed of Israel naturally are the seed of Israel truly, this is not a novelty. This is what the Scriptures have taught from the very beginning. And he forces it home in these words in verse 13, as it is written, just in case we've missed the point, he cites one last Scripture from Malachi chapter 1, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, just let me pause there because I think it's just at this point that, that many Christians begin to talk back to Paul without actually hearing what he's saying and thinking it through. And there are several things for us just to notice before we, before we finally press this whole matter home. First of all, Paul is not here speaking simply about positions in the nationalistic or national purposes of God. He is thinking ultimately about Jew and Gentile, but he's not here thinking about why it is that God blesses some nations and why he refrains from blessing other nations. Because for one thing, his concern here, as we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 10, is the salvation of people. And for another thing, he is actually talking about individuals here. The second thing to notice is this, that this is not a matter of indifference to him. This is a matter of having a broken heart. And so this is not the cold, analytical apostle Paul working out some philosophy of history. This is Paul doing what few of us reach in an agonized heart, trying to work through the teaching of Scripture and to submit his mind and will to it, and then to deal with the consequences and the implications. And I think there's another thing to be said here. When the Apostle Paul cites the opening verses of Malachi, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, we shouldn't misunderstand Paul to be saying, I really love Jacob, and I love Esau just a little bit less. Why do I say that? I say that, dear ones, this will sound almost foolish, but I say that because I've actually read Malachi chapter 1. 
And if you read Malachi chapter 1, you know that God is not saying about Jacob and Esau, I really love Jacob, and, but I, I like Esau just a little bit less. Because Malachi chapter 1 is about that love of God for Jacob that brings extraordinary blessing to those who virtually by definition are twisted sinners. And how to other twisted sinners he brings about the most awful judgment. Now, I want to speak back to Paul, don't you? I want to say to Paul, but Paul, remember, of course, Paul is thinking about Jacob and Esau as sinners, thinking about us as sinners, thinking about Gentiles and Jews as sinners. But I, I want to say back to Paul, now listen, Paul, there must be some reason. Can't you find some reason that made God choose Jacob rather than Esau? There must be something in Jacob that made the difference. But you see, Paul understands that the moment I have said that, that's the moment I have disgraced grace. And grace is no more grace. Grace is God's love plus my qualifications, which lead to God's purposes. And what Paul is actually saying here, and I think I can prove that this is what Paul is saying, and I'll show you that in a moment. What he's actually saying here is that God's purpose to choose Jacob and to leave Esau under judgment was entirely a matter of his own sovereign grace to save a man and eventually to save a people. Because everything he's been saying in this letter up to this point has been to demonstrate that there is nothing in me that qualifies me for salvation, nothing in me that qualifies me for grace. And so you can sense as the people are so interested in the works of the law and keeping the works of the law that what Paul is saying here is that if salvation is altogether by grace, salvation is altogether rooted in the sovereign good pleasure of Almighty God, that instead of condemning the entire world to a holocaust, He would have mercy and call a people into being for His own praise and for His own glory. Because Jesus Christ did not die for you and me because of anything in you and me, did He? Jesus Christ didn't die for us because, as it were, he was able to look down history and say, that Sinclair Ferguson fellow, he's a rascal as a 13-year-old, but when he's 14 and 15, he will be the perfect candidate for me. Any more than as we've seen, God would look at Ishmael in his illegitimacy and the foolishness of his parents and his mocking and say, that man is out whereas his brother is in. Now, dear friends, this is one of the most important things you and I as Christians could ever grasp. Because until this flattens me before God, I haven't actually begun to appreciate, nor can I fully and finally delight in the sheer graciousness of God's grace and the problem I have is, Christian though I may be, I insist on smuggling something in that I am, that I have done, that I have accomplished as a regenerated Christian, perhaps, to say, ah, now, God, I know why you chose me. And just at that point, I become the Pharisee in the temple. Because I'm saying to God, oh God, I thank you for my sanctification. I fast and I pray, and I thank you for this. But especially, of course, I thank you because this is the reason you chose me. 
This is the reason why I'm different from that miserable publican over on the other side who's beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it was the publican who went down from the temple having grasped the sheerness of the grace of God. My dear friends, many of our problems in the Christian life are rooted in the fact that we are not utterly consumed by the knowledge that God has been gracious to us if we're His. And this is perhaps the most obvious point at which that tendency within us all to say, but yes, there is something in me that has made God gracious to me. Paul is speaking about something that has happened in history, but he's pointing us to the God of history and the God of salvation, and therefore there is this application for us. There's this application for me. That God has drawn me, if I'm a Christian, into this new humanity, into the family of the church, not because he saw I would be a ripe candidate for faith, not because of the level of my sanctification, Paul was willing to say dangerous things about this and to say, if you think God's love for you is rooted in the level of your sanctification, you still aren't grasping what His grace is. His grace is for sinners who recognize they are nothing but sinners and therefore need God's gracious choice of them in the first instance. Yes, Lord, but look at me. There's my family. Surely, surely what's happened in my family, sure the fruitfulness of my Christian life, surely my service, surely my position in the church, other people think so well of me. Surely the way I'm rearing my children, surely the fact I go to the prayer meeting, surely the fact I read my Bible every day, surely the fact that I witness to Jesus Christ in my workplace, surely these are among the reasons why you have looked with favor upon me and not passed me by. And that turns the gospel on its head because it makes the fruit of the gospel the foundation of the gospel and the evidences of grace into the causes of grace but there is only one cause of God's electing grace. And it's God. And you see, this is the very point at which, as Paul brings us to stretch into the eternal purposes of God, we find ourselves blinded by this reality because this is something we cannot control. And every single one of us, no matter what we think about ourselves, are, in this instance, control freaks. And this is flattening me. It's not flattening me, you see, speaking to Christians in Rome. He doesn't want to flatten Christians in Rome in order to annihilate them, but to bring them to that place where, like stars in the darkness of the night sky, they can see grace for the unfettered graciousness it really is. When I see, Lord, it's not because of anything in me that you had mercy on me, it's not because I can look at something in myself. Oh, God help us, how often we do this with non-Christians and sometimes with Christians. It's because of what you see in me, God, that you've been gracious to me. No, he says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. No, all kinds of questions rush into your mind. Get them out of your mind. You can solve or not solve the questions afterwards. The real issue that needs to be solved in my heart is, do I really attribute all of my salvation to Him? Because if I attribute His love for me to a scintilla of something in myself, that salvation is no longer 
by grace. It's by love plus something in me. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if a question arises in your mind as you think about this. God's sovereign election. That if you're a Christian, the reason you are a Christian tonight is entirely in God and His infinite, merciful grace to you. And I know many people who are very tempted to say, just at this point, if that's the case, if it's not because of something that distinguishes me from Him, that leads God to be gracious to me, then God is unjust. I wouldn't say that if I were you. Because that's the very question that proves that this is what Paul is saying. Do you know how I know? You do, don't you? Because it's the very next question he asks. And he wouldn't ask it if he didn't realize that there is something in the human heart that says, I want justice. And that's the heart that can never, ever, ever understand the gospel. Because the only person who gets justice in the gospel is Jesus. Remember this, says Portia, doesn't she, in The Merchant of Venice? Remember this, Jew, as you cry for justice, that in the way of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy. And Paul is helping us, as it were, as he expounds all that it means for God to have chosen Abraham and his seed. He's helping us to see if we are the true seed of Abraham, which he says Christians are, that it's all of God, it's all of grace, and it's all of Christ. And that does three things. It humbles my pride. It strangles the demeanor that regards itself as superior either to another Christian or to another human being. It is the last nail in the coffin of my self-sufficiency. And it brings me to the place where I'm able to look up into his face and say, Thou must save, and thou alone. Or to sing with the young Murray McChain, When this passing world is done, When a sunk yon glaring sun, When we stand with Christ in glory, Looking o'er life's finished story, Then, Lord, shall I fully know, Not till then, how much I owe, Chosen not for good, in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. When it comes to grace, the only way up is down. Do you see it? You're fussing and arguing with God. And what you're actually doing is saying, not grace, but you plus me equals salvation.
That's not the gospel. And it will bring you despair in your Christian life. It is all of grace. Are you down? The demeanor of pride, is it going to, is it going to begin to disappear this week because of this? This is an overwhelming word. Or am I going to keep shrugging my shoulders and say, I think the kind of grace I believe in is better than His? Heavenly Father, what a word this is, but how good it is for us to be bowed down before the power of Your Word and the way in which it pulls down our pride and those lingering strong elements of self-sufficiency in us, that we would believe that You have chosen us because we were good candidates for Your grace. And as we bow before You and recognize that we are on the edge of mystery here, we pray that the mystery may not deflect us from the humility and the worship and the prostration and the adoration that though we cannot begin to understand Your ways, we believe because we have come to faith in Jesus Christ that You must have chosen us out of pure grace from before the foundation of the world and not because of anything in us, not because of anything good that we would do, nor because of any evil, but only that your gracious purposes might stand. O Lord, make us such a people, we pray, that as we are bowed down low, we may see your glory and grace clearly and well, and this we pray for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen.